Welcome to episode 70 of the British Broadcasting Century, the podcast telling the moment-by-moment origin story of British broadcasting. And this time we reach a crucial moment in the life of the early BBC. A week and a half in April of 1923 sees the BBC versus the government and the BBC versus the press. What a combination. I don't know that either feud has been healed fully since, over a hundred years later. We're very passionate on the subject and the war against the BBC hasn't finished. When you look at the sheer volume of attacks, they come 95% from the right. Pretty much whatever happens, the right wing, what we call SMET, the Sun Mail Express Telegraph, will either ignore it if it's unambiguously good for the BBC, or they will sort of find a way to make it a negative. Professor Patrick Barwise and Peter York there, authors of the book The War Against the BBC. We will hear from them in this episode on 2023's troubles for the present day auntie, but it's a split tale as I tell you about the similar troubles a century earlier. For the BBC then and now, it's a tricky time and I think an important episode. The press versus the BBC versus the government. 1923 and 2023 on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London Calling. Hello, hello. Welcome to the British Broadcasting Century. I'm Paul Carenza. Lots to pack in this episode, don't we always? And if you've just joined us, you're welcome. You can pick it up from here. You don't need to go fully back. We are going very gradually through the key moments of the the baby sea. Yes, the baby BBC. On recent episodes, that's meant uh, spring 1923, Reith hiring the first organiser of children's broadcasting, uh, and also an eccentric new boss for the Cardiff station, Arthur Corbett Smith. Uh, we've seen the BBC move from Magnet House into Savoy Hill and pioneering lots of new programmes. But all of this costs money. So while on previous episodes, we've been looking at what is on the air, the swan gliding through the water, underneath the waves, John Reith, the general manager, he's like the swan's lower half paddling away trying to stop a two-pronged fight against the press and the government it's not just a skirmish you could argue it's a hundred years war still with us today and for the early bbc it comes to a head in one of the toughest 10 days of the beeb's existence april the 5th to april 15th 1923 Now, regular listeners may have noticed we didn't start with eight previously this time because I've been saving it for now because you might need a little bit of background. So before we meet Professor Patrick Barwise and Peter York in 2023 and hear from them about today's troubles, and before I tell you about Reith's fortnight horribilis in spring 1923, let's bring you up to speed of how the early Beeb reached where it has through the lens of government and press pressure. This is a whiz through British broadcasting in terms of the state and the newspapers. We could go back very far indeed, because previously on the British Broadcasting Century... 1904, the Wireless Telegraphy Act is introduced to experiment with wireless. You will need a licence, and you must be British, have two character references, and then the ether is yours. From 1913, these licences cost a pound, and from 1919, you can get a new experimental receiver's licence at just ten shillings a year. Voila, a licence fee. Now, all of this is overseen by the General Post Office, headed up by the Postmaster General. as a government cabinet minister who never knowingly signed up to oversee broadcasting. His powers originated with the Postal Service, and then wired messages along cables, and then wireless morse, voice, and finally broadcasting. 
1920, broadcasting gets underway, but the Marconi Company soon have a run-in with the press. Engineers Ditchum and Round read newspaper articles to test their transmissions, but some newspapers take against this, and they ask if they would read the previous day's newspaper so the news isn't given away for free. Already the press are worried about this new kid on the media block stealing their readers. But the Daily Mail love a fad, so they sponsor the 1920 Melba transmission. Although the government are reluctant to allow such wireless experimentation, it competes with the military for space on the airwaves. So the government ban all radio broadcasts in late 1920. Arthur Burroughs of the Marconi Company tries getting the press on side to use wireless and joins a ship full of journos to demonstrate it. After 18 months of no experimental transmissions, the government relent, broadcasting booms in 1922. So the press are rather concerned. This burgeoning BBC agrees not to gather news and only to read it after 7pm to give the public a chance to buy newspapers. 1st November 1922, Postmaster General Francis Kellaway introduces the 10-shilling broadcast receiving licence. Early 1923, the new BBC is banned from the listings, as the press decide it's all advertising the Beeb should pay. The press go back on that when they realise that radio listings actually sell newspapers for them. And that brings us to April 1923. The press aren't happy, the government aren't happy, and Reith is, well, he's never happy. So let's pick up the tale from there. Now, it's rather a complex issue, so we'll intersperse the 1923 tale with our special guests with the 2023 tale. Just to see how continual this problem is, let's meet them, shall we? Their book is The War Against the BBC, How an Unprecedented Combination of Hostile Forces is Destroying Britain's Greatest Cultural Institution and Why You Should Care. And I joined them for a chat. Peter York and first, Professor Patrick Barwise. It goes back to the general strike. And, and of course, Reith was a Tory. And, uh, you know, we, we go into this in some detail in, in the book. Churchill's complaint was that the BBC had been impartial. And how can you be impartial between the fire and the fire brigade? So, mm. I mean, the, mm. which is a wonderful Churchillian yeah, quote yes. <laughs> and brilliant, um, but also <laughs> actually very revealing about yeah. the assumption. Also, at one point when he was, I think, briefing and arranging for the Prime Minister to make to make an important broadcast during the general strike, he said, I'm going to be impartial, 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 but not that impartial. <laughs> and that is a fault line that the MRC, the Media Reform Coalition, point to in the basic design of the BBC. You know, BBC, wonderful output, marvellous and very varied divisions, all that stuff. But the basic fault line is that the BBC is not politician-proof, that the government of the day appoints the chairman. The government of the day is enabled to mildly throttle the BBC as part of its relationship, to say... You know, we're going to be very nasty to you about the licence fee if you don't do something about it. Of course, this is never absolutely spelt out in WhatsApps, but everyone knows what is meant by it. That's always been true of leading politicians, but more so, more so when it's Conservatives. As for its 1923 problem with government and press, let's begin with a section that I'm calling the licence problem and the Norwich letter. 
Ah, yes, the humble radio licence was the catalyst for all sorts of problems by spring of 1923. And this tale somehow sort of begins with Reith walking down the street in early April that year. He bumps into the brand new Postmaster General, Sir William Joynson Hicks, known as Jix. Now, we've not mentioned Jix on the podcast before, partly because he's been only in post for a fortnight at this point in our timeline. He's taken over from Postmaster General Neville Chamberlain, and he took over from Postmaster General Francis Kellaway. Kellaway was voted out of office the day after the BBC was launched and went straight into a cosy job at the Marconi Company. So, in brief, we've had three Postmasters General in six months, regenerating like Doctor's Who. I presume that's the plural. Joynson Hicks will be out of that post by the summer. Not a strong and stable government. So there in the street, a glum John Reith challenges this new postmaster general about the licence problem. Now, what is the licence problem? Well, largely it's a lack of cash for the BBC. You see, to fund everything, the Beeb got a royalty from new radio sets being bought and they got a cut of the broadcast receiving licence fee. The trouble is, most people back then, just a few months into the BBC, were making their own sets. Here's chief engineer of the day, our friend Peter Eckersley. What about the revenue? Well, said the postmaster general, this license is it'll only be possible for people who buy sets stamped, type approved by postmaster general. Only those so stamped and so passed will be those that can be used for listening. Well, it was a fine idea, but it didn't work. There are about 1,500 official BBC stamped radio sets available on the market, but people just weren't buying them. This was the BBC's biggest problem for its first year, homemade sets. Because, of course, that time, there was sufficient information knocking about to enable any enthusiast to use his uh, washing line or the damp piece of string as an aerial and get a knife pushing on a piece of coal as a detector and a pair of borrowed headphones and get the programmes. In other words, it was all too easy for the home constructor to make up a lash-up and hear the programmes. And uh, the type was not approved by the Postmaster General. Even the wireless magazines were encouraging people to do this and, and buy the experimenter's licence. Modern Wireless magazine that year actually told people how to sneakily convince the General Post Office that you were a bona fide wireless experimenter, how to answer their questions and prove that actually, yeah, you just wanted to experiment. The BBC gained no income then from these experimenters' licences, no royalty from their homemade sets. In early April 23, Reith was having strong words in the street with Postmaster General Joynson Hicks. They needed a new license system, and Jix actually agreed with Reith. He said he was going to reform the entire license system anyway, but because he thought it was unfair to the government. So already there's a little bit of rivalry there over exactly how things should change, to benefit the Beeb or benefit the state. Now, the Postmaster General was about to set off on his holidays to Norwich, and he asked Reith if he would write to him with his grievances there. So on the 5th of April, 1923, Reith writes the Norwich letter. Yeah, that's what they call it. The manufacturers who came together by invitation of the post office and eventually succeeded in laying the plans for the formation of our broadcasting company are responsible for the popularity of wireless today. Reith went on to say how much they'd risked, how much employment they'd created. But the contract that they'd entered into had not been honoured by the post office. The enormous evasion of licence on the one hand and the widespread use of non-BBC marked sets sold by new companies and of homemade sets on the other was not foreseen. These factors represented a most serious loss to the company. The difficulties became acute 
far the greater majority of people who wish to listen to these programs built their own sets, crystal sets and so forth whereas the buyers of the things stamped type approved were very small in proportion and the BBC was getting rid of its capital rather quickly its revenue was absurdly small the government didn't seem that concerned Reith was very concerned where was their money? the attitude of post office and treasury to finance was one of the most sickening features of the early years he accused the Postmaster General of issuing experimenters' licences to non-experimenters. These were just home constructors. The General Post Office were shirking from their duties and not checking who was applying for these experimenters' licences. Reith wanted Jix, the Postmaster General, to clamp down on evaders and fake experimenters and, in the words of Bob Geldof, give him his ing money. A new third licence was then suggested, a constructor's licence, rethought for a pound, so people could still build their own radio sets and then pay to listen to them. Home constructors who had already made their sets had been unable to obtain licences of any kind and were thus pirates. The BBC would then get some revenue after all. Yet Reith knew this was becoming oddly controversial. The BBC increasingly had enemies. One newspaper offers to undertake broadcasting free, he wrote in his letter to the Postmaster General. That newspaper was the Daily Express, and Reith was in fact referring to that very day's edition. April 5th, 1923, the Daily Express asked if we need a licence fee at all, if we need a BBC at all. Commercial companies, it said, could broadcast at no cost to listeners in. The Express did not stop there. Next day, April 6th, they had a front-page headline. Our air, we believe. Several firms are prepared to follow the lead of the Daily Express, which has offered to begin broadcasting at once for nothing, and provide programmes that will rescue listening in from the boredom of the lustreless programmes sent out by the British Broadcasting Company. The press's anti-BBC campaign had begun, and they followed it up with action. That very day, the Daily Express applied to the Postmaster General in the government for permission to broadcast as a radio station, a competitor to the BBC, Express Radio. Millionaire Press would like to corner broadcasting, reported the Daily Herald that day. They were spotting the Express's wily ways. An attempt is being made by certain capitalist newspapers to capture the wireless broadcasting monopoly for themselves. And with this object in view, attacks are being made upon the monopoly at present held by the British Broadcasting Company. No one should be deceived into thinking these attacks are made because the monopoly is a monopoly. The millionaire press knows quite well what it is doing and why, and the whole agitation requires careful watching. The Daily Herald are watching them, and we shall watch carefully too. A hundred years on, we should continue to do so, according to Patrick Barwise and Peter York. The Express absolutely had a vendetta against the BBC in 23, as mm -hmm. did the Postmaster General saying, why should we give you our money from all these licence fees that we're accruing? So it goes back a hundred mm. years, it seems. There's an ideological strand which I think runs the whole way through. The right-wing think tanks, the folks who brought us the Liz Truss uh, so-called mini-budget, they also brought us sewage on the beach as well, okay, so the privatisation of the water and sewage companies. There is a commercial strand. I think the nature of that commercial strand sort of changes over time, but certainly all media which are funded wholly or partly by advertising, obviously sort of hugely against the BBC, carrying advertising. And then I think there is a part of political side, not only from politicians and right-wing think tanks, uh, but also, um, you know, the newspapers have always been right-leaning. And it's not just Peter and me who say that. The British public regards 
most of the newspapers as right-leaning. I think there may be a fourth factor um, which ties in with sort of right-wing populism, and that is the idea that there is a silent majority of people who agree with the right-wing view that the BBC's news coverage is systematically biased to the left. Uh, And we recently wrote a piece in Prospect specifically about this, and we quoted some of the right-wing critics of the BBC who didn't merely say the BBC is a bit left-wing. They said the BBC is so obviously and systematically left-wing that all reasonable people agree with that. And we contrasted that with, with the YouGov data on what the British public thinks, which shows, of course, there's a wide spectrum of opinion, but only about 20% of people agree with that view, that the BBC is left-wing. 20% agree with the the exact opposite view, uh, that it actually leans to the right and is part of the establishment. And the 60% in between either say, I don't know, which means they don't see any obvious bias, or they explicitly say the BBC is balanced. I suspect that, again, runs through the 100 years history of the BBC. There's always this, this, uh, these accusations that some people on the right think it's too far to the left, people on the left think it's too far to the right. So if you're offending the equal amount of people, then potentially <clears throat> you're, you're centrist enough. But then the if- BBC quite likes that. Um, it's, it's what we call the symmetrical delusion. Mm-hmm. We started researching with some idea that, that there was a bit of symmetry to it and if it was an attack from either side that made it potentially good and impartial and all those things. When you look at the sheer volume of attacks, consistent attacks, they come 95% from the right. And if you think about it, it's very obvious why. The left is not hostile to public service anything. It does not, for the most part, have commercial um, ambitions towards the audiences of the BBC. It's only the third bit that might concern them. What they think is the BBC's hostility to the left in its coverage of the left. So... The left does not spend days and nights with highly professional people who've been, as it were, trained in K Street, Washington, attacking the BBC. It simply doesn't do it. It reacts to things. Let's say the coverage of Corbyn was enraging for a lot of people on the left, and particularly the further left. But they, you know, when that stopped, they forget about it. They do not have a professional, constant vendetta. That's an interesting. This, so this, reactive, not active, then, isn't it? Left are reactive against absolutely. it, whereas the, the right are potentially more active. Reactive. Yeah, okay. And it mainly comes out, it's provoked by BBC criticism or, as they see it, biased coverage. We were surprised. The fallacy of symmetry which which is often sort of cited, um, which is actually pretty close to the truth in terms of public opinion about whether the BBC is biased or not. But we thought in terms of organised attacks, this is people as part of their day job as a journalist or a politician or think tanker. 
we thought there might be a slight bias to the right. We were astonished at the extent of the imbalance, that the organised war against the BBC is overwhelmingly from the right. And there are the factors that Peter's mentioned. There's another factor, which is the right tends to be much better resourced. Okay, so I mean, there's, there is no left-wing equivalent of 55 Tufton Street. And if your listeners don't know about 55 Tufton Street, Google it. It's the, what, what we call the sort of, it's the centre of, of the illiberal metropolitan elite, this cluster of right-wing think tanks. But also, uh, because it's not just in terms of resources, it's also in terms of outlets. And, and, and this is even before, you know, uh, talk TV and GB News mm. didn't exist, you know, when we were when the book came out. Uh, but the newspapers were dominated by the right. Well, I was going to mention the GB News talk radio uh, effect. That therefore, I wonder if, as well, in contrast to those outlets, whether you think of it as Fox News Light or Fox News UK, whatever it might be, but therefore the BBC may look more left leaning compared to these these more right-wing broadcasters and therefore well that's be... true but nobody, nobody watches them much so the, mm. the uh you know, fox news really matters talk tv i've appeared on talk tv i was interviewed by nadine doris uh somewhat yeah. hilariously ah. um, i, I, I wonder how Google... long it would take i wonder how long it would take before nadine doris's name came up so i didn't know it was going to ah, be yes. in this context but here we are uh, well no, yes, nadine, so uh it was a fairly amusing sort of experience but um the you know they stay stay mostly within the guidelines just they set up debates but always with the agenda chosen um, and you know it is not a level playing field but it is just within the rules More from Patrick and Peter shortly, uh, but back in 1923 and April, popular wireless magazine said, Daily Express had a loud shout the other day about the broadcasting monopoly. Their criticisms are more destructive than constructive. So at this point in that week or so, in the middle of April 1923, the Express newspaper have launched their campaign against the BBC. Now, some thought this campaign was just a stunt. Others thought it more dangerous that readers might be convinced by what they read. There are many people who are too readily impressed by heavy type, said Amateur Wireless magazine in heavy type. Why did the Express have such a problem with the BBC then? Well, here's something I've not read anywhere, so this may be a blind leap on my part, but... That's another thought. If you remember back to when we hired Reith, well, we didn't hire him, but this podcast spoke of Reith's hiring. Now, one of the other candidates was actually offered the post of running the BBC, but he turned it down. And that was John Gordon, chief editor of the Daily Express, which now, what are the chances, are having a go at the BBC on an almost daily basis? Bit of a personal vendetta then? Well, maybe it was. But I think it was probably also really someone else's personal vendetta. John Gordon's boss, Lord Beaverbrook, was leading the charge. He owned the Express newspaper and he liked representing the little people, so he said. And when he couldn't find a cause to ally with, I think he invented one. The mischief maker in chief is what some called Lord Beaverbrook. But he wasn't the only mischief maker. The mail editor also was joining in. The Daily Mail would apply to broadcast later as well. Primarily, though, Reith needed to take on the Express, who at this point was still waiting to hear back if their licence to broadcast had been approved. So, April 10th, 1923, a few things happen. Firstly, it's the day of Cardiff's first Shakespeare extract of King John, by the way. And in the newspapers, the Express campaign continued. They turned their aim towards the post office. Was the collection of licence fees even legal, the Daily Express asked? 
Reith had had enough. He went to see Lord Beaverbrook, the owner of the Express, about the stunt he's running against us. I was not a bit afraid of him, as I imagined he expected me to be. He said I'd impressed him very much. So Reith half won over Beaverbrook, convincing him that broadcasting's safest pair of hands was really the BBC and John Reith. He said all he was out against was the manufacturers taking control of broadcasting. But still, the Express were waiting to hear back from the Postmaster General about their own application to broadcast. The anti-BBC campaign continued in the Daily Express. They decided to characterise the uh, discussions between Reith and the Postmaster General as a sort of conspiracy. A frantic effort by the BBC to maintain a stranglehold on the whole industry of amateur wireless in Britain. They wrote that the day after Reith had gone to meet the owner of the Express. Conspiracy theories abounded then. We need Mariana Springs' ancestor to investigate with BBC Verify 1923. The day after that, and that's the 12th of April 1923, you get actually the first use of the initials BBC in a newspaper article, rather than the longer British Broadcasting Company as it had been till now. We believe this was the first anyway, according to newspaper detective Andrew Barker, and it was in the Nottingham Evening Post, where it said, The need for a revision of existing arrangements by methods that vary from the proposals of the BBC has been made ever clearer. In other words, something needs to change. The BBC may not have got it right, the Postmaster General may not have either. But for Reith, they needed really this third licence. So to remind you again, this is for home constructors. Not constructors of home, but people who at home would make their own radio sets. And as it stood, there was not a licence that they could actually apply for. Because you could only get a broadcast receiving licence if you bought a set from a shop. Instead, they were getting the experimenter's licence, of which no revenue went to the BBC. The coffers were drying up. So that day, 12th of April, Reith told the BBC board that this was his final word on it. If the Postmaster General did not accept his proposal for a third licence for a pound, that would be a serious breach of faith from the post office. Next day, 13th of April, Reith had his answer. Would the Postmaster General accept it? No. Johnson Hicks wrote a final letter to the BBC board saying that he and Reith were in a position of deadlock. And then Johnson Hicks started to moan that he'd inherited this BBC agreement from two previous lacklustre postmaster generals. Francis Kellaway had started it. Neville Chamberlain had finished the agreement. Johnson Hicks had arrived in the office and essentially just shrugged at it. A few days later, this all became rather public when both of these previous postmasters general, that's Sir Francis Kellaway and Neville Chamberlain, they had a public spat about whose fault this mess was. It's like a row at a Doctor Who convention between McCoy and McGann. Kellaway said that he only started this BBC agreement in spring 22 and that it was all Chamberlain's fault for finishing it wrong. Neville Chamberlain, who took charge of the General Post Office in November 22, said, how dare you? I didn't alter a single word of the agreement that you set up that was all over the place. Chamberlain said, I just signed it and delivered it. Whatever was agreed between auntie and nanny state, it's all your fault. None of these postmasters general were saying what they would change the BBC agreement to, just that it was a mess. And I guess this is part of the problem of big government being in charge of the beep. People keep changing at the top. One postmaster general disagrees with the previous one. A deal is struck and then reneged on a few years later. You can see the over 75 license fee issues for details on that one. And of course, we don't have a postmaster general now. We have a culture secretary. And again, they don't last too long either. We're now on to whatever, our 12th culture secretary since 2010. Nadine is now history, so I guess life would be a little bit less entertaining without Nadine. Back on 13th of April 1923, Postmaster General was writing to the BBC board. He just couldn't allow Reith's £1 constructor's licence. He said it targeted poorer users. It would, in my view, be ridiculous to charge the 10 shillings licence to the man who may purchase from your company a £100 receiving set 
and the 20 shillings license to the man who desires to make at the lowest possible price a crystal set for his own use and experiment. Johnson Hicks explained he hadn't prosecuted any license evaders because there was no license these home constructors could really buy. He was keen to issue a constructor's license, but not for a quid. How about a more affordable 10 shillings? And just for the basic crystal sets only. He threatened that if the BBC didn't accept his terms, I shall have no alternative but to grant experimental licences to those applicants, 40,000 of them, who filled up the necessary forms stating they desired to use wireless telegraphy for experimental purposes. In other words, no revenue for the BBC. He would let the Beeb flounder cashless. Maybe the Express would get their way after all. This is government playing into the hands of the press a hundred years ago. And that evening of the 13th of April 23, the Savoy Havana Band gave, I believe, their first studio broadcast, the band playing on. Behind the jollity of on-air entertainment, the BBC was not in a good place. Now, the Postmaster General had actually been leaking all of his replies to the BBC to the press. So next day, 14th of April, we're on now. The Daily Express responded to the Postmaster General's latest offer. An immense stride has been made towards the clarification of the wireless muddle. The freedom of the air for which the Daily Express has contended is almost achieved. But actually that day, the Express heard from the General Post Office themselves. Their application to broadcast, which they'd sent in eight days earlier, had been refused. This from the General Post Office. The Postmaster General would be unable to grant facilities in this respect to a particular newspaper, which owing to risk of interference, he would be unable to grant generally to other newspapers and organisations. In other words, no newspaper radios. You hear that, Times Radio? So that's where we're going to leave the 1923 story for this episode, at a point where it's now the press versus the government, the press versus the BBC, and the BBC versus the government. You've heard of a love triangle. This is the opposite. The press have been told they're not allowed to broadcast. The BBC have been told to accept a lower licence fee. Otherwise, licences will essentially be just given away. And John Reith has said that it's his final word on the matter, that they can't go on without any income. Bit of a stalemate. We'll find out next time how things proceed from there. And it ends up in the House of Commons. But there's not going to be a simple solution to this. A hundred years on, the BBC still feels that pressure from both sides. So say Peter York and first Patrick Barwise. The British public still consumes the BBC's services an average of over two hours every day. Nothing else comes close. In terms of people's everyday lives, it's by far the biggest brand for the UK public. It's not as highly trusted as it was five years ago, but then nor is anything else. And I have to say that particularly, um, you know, after um, Boris Johnson, already trust in institutions was going down and trust in politicians was already pretty pretty low. I'm happy to say that professors are among the people most highly trusted and mm. quite right, too. <laughs> but um, the uh, the BBC's trust figure is sort of lower than it was five years ago, but it's still number one or thereabouts in the UK. And crucially, When we persuaded the BBC, not once but twice, in 2015, which we report in the book, and then again in 2022, to run a study focused on critics of the BBC among the public who say the licence fee isn't good value for money, and they were given a small incentive to participate, and then they were promised, we want you to live and your family to live with no BBC for nine days. We will then give you back nine days license fee. And when that experiment was run in uh, 2015, 68% at the end of nine days changed their minds. And when it was repeated in 2022, 70% changed wow. their minds. Mm. 
incredible. Okay, so but it's taken for granted. Yes, okay. it is. And that's why this it's it's this salami slicing of the funding, which is the only real threat mm. to the BBC. So it's attacked on its news coverage and in all sorts of ways. But it's the salami slicing of the funding, which is the real threat, because very few people realize that the, the current Nadine Doris two year license fee freeze with license, with inflation now over 10 percent per annum. Mm. What pe- very few people understand and the BBC hasn't communicated successfully is that this comes on top of a 26 percent cumulative cut in their real funding since 2010 mm. and in a in a market with not only growing competition, but in which costs are rising faster than general inflation. So rising real costs, enormously reduced real resources. And then you do end up doing stupid things like suggesting you're going to stop the BBC singers, which I think was a wrong decision, and they were right to reverse it. The basic message that the BBC's resources have been fantastically reduced and stretched is something they don't use. We're never on the BBC because Mm. that is to open a can that they don't want opened. The Mm. whole question of their funding and the push-me-pull-you of it and the whole question of the strategy and the priorities in cuts and new investments and the balance between digital and linear and all that stuff, they, for, for reasons we don't really understand they don't want that particular debate out there your book then the war against the bbc which was out a few years a couple of years ago but so much has happened since this is two years ago this feels like book one in a 10 book series of of ongoing every week there's something that seems to be um, adding fresh fire um, fuel to this fire Uh, so what does what does the BBC, do you think, need to do? Should should it do? And what do we as consumers, should we be making more of a, a fuss about these things? Or how, do, how should we be engaged in what can change? What it? they should do is be less cautious because it won't get them anywhere. You know, trying to assuage the forces ranked against them won't get them anywhere because those people want to kill them whatever happens, one concession, one taste of blood leads on to more demands. You can see it every time. And giving in to those demands absolutely doesn't work. It doesn't work, for instance, in terms of gathering their support, because their support don't know about the case. Mm. We're concerned Mm. about it, and we do. We're clearly obsessives. Mm. (laughs) But the natural support group for the BBC doesn't really know about the fix they're in. And it's the depth of the cuts is the biggest issue, um, because everything else follows from that. Now, I was actually at a a roundtable with with Tim Davey, the Director-General, last week, uh, myself and, and a dozen other academics. And um, I did sort of press him on this. And he he had sort of an initial response, which is, of course, he agrees that uh, most people don't realise just how deep the cuts were before the two-year licence fee freeze. However, I then pressed him further and said, well, the particular thing I'm thinking of is the arts correspondent of The Times 
who has written not one, not two, but three articles on the BBC Singer thing in particular. What he has said is the BBC is facing funding pressures because of the two-year licence fee freeze. And I said, even someone writing for, you know, the paper of record in the UK... Who's proprietor? Who is proprietor, I wonder? I don't think that's the reason. Absolutely not. The Times, the Times in general has been very balanced, so I don't think... I it don't has, think but at the end of the day, when you get to this subject, things creep in. No, that that is paranoia, <laughs> Peter. I'm sorry. The, I'm, uh, what, every but time what I said I've been the... paranoid, I've been right. That's the awful thing about the subject of the BBC. Every time one thinks, "Oh God, that's paranoid," every bit of paranoia uh, has been absolutely right. Well, time so, may tell. Time may tell on it, this one. It, it, a, willful, a bit of willful ignorance. The DG accepted my point that that if if a Times journalist writing not one, not two, but three articles on this subject hadn't picked up that the two-year licence fee freeze came after 25-26% cumulative cuts since 2010, then then the BBC has not done a good enough job Mm. communicating to those influencers. Well, uh, your marvellous book, The War Against the BBC, Patrick Barwise and Peter York, thank you for joining us on the podcast. And uh, I don't know whether this is prescient, prophetic, book one of an ongoing... Uh, so how do we find out more from, from here, apart from buying the book? Should we just keep in, looking out for you online and your articles that you're... All pre- sentient beings should buy the book. Absolutely. And we are constantly updating with things like the, the Prospect article. We've done a number of updates. Mm including one explaining why Netflix is not the BBC and the BBC is not Netflix and they should never be compared by anyone who had any intellectual vanity whatsoever. Illuminating stuff. My thanks to Professor Patrick Barwise and Peter York, the authors of The War Against the BBC, How an Unprecedented Combination of Hostile Forces is Destroying Britain's Greatest Cultural Institution and Why You Should Care. What a title. Highly recommended. Link is in the show notes. We'll also put a link there to an article they've written for Prospect website, because while the book was out a couple of years ago, their research continues and continues to respond to this ever-changing journey of press versus BBC versus government. I'm sure that we will revisit this issue, both how it was then, how it is now, and indeed maybe how it might be in the future. In the immediate future, though, next time on the podcast, our timeline continues into late April 1923. The Daily Express, they were continuing their campaign. In fact, that ran on until October of that year. The government were taking time to consider their position because it was stalemate. So the Postmaster General brings the debate to the Commons floor. So next time on the podcast, we will look at two debates in Parliament that bring about the next steps, the BBC's first government inquiry. And oh, yes, it may mean the return of the parliamentary podcast players. So if you were one of those before and would like to be one again, get in touch. Paul at paulcarenza.com. Before we go, just time to tell you that I am indeed on tour. paulcarenza.com slash tour will tell you where I'm bringing an evening of very old radio. It's on at Guildford Fringe and Romsey Festival this side of the summer. After the summer, it's in Chelmsford and Kettering and West London. And also very, very soon, I'm doing the first religious broadcast restaged. That's in Guildford. So do head to paulcarenza.com slash tour to find out if I'm presenting this tale anywhere near you. 
come and say hi. And if you'd like to book it for your place, do get in touch, paul at paulcarenza.com. And trust me, the live show won't be quite as politically heavy as this episode has been. Instead, we'll be retelling or recreating the tale behind the first drama, the first comedian, the first children's programmes, the first music on the BBC, and much, much more. And the bar will be open. Do join me. Thank you for listening. If you benefit from this podcast, do consider chipping in monthly, patreon.com slash Paul Carenza. You'll get things in return. Or chip in as a one-off on coffee.com, that's ko-fi.com slash Paul Carenza in return for nothing but the joy of helping this podcast and my ongoing research into how the Beeb began and where it got us. Do see our show notes for more information and uh, thanks for listening. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. BBC content is used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights are reserved. We are, of course, nothing to do with the present-day BBC whatsoever. This is an independent podcast talking largely about the early days and occasionally today's. But we are not made by them. We're just here to inform, educate and entertain. Join us next time for Today in Parliament. Well, not today, that day, back then. April 16th to 24th. 1923 the debates in the commons all about the bbc it's livelier than it sounds and it's all kicking off here on the british broadcasting century